Wow, what a realization, Father, to know that you love us that much and that you know each of us by name and that you have the same invitation to join you in a life abundant and free under Christ Jesus' loving embrace and leadership in our lives and that you won't hold anybody back that anybody, regardless of what their past might look like, can come to you freely and be embraced by you as you place your cloak of righteousness over them. And we pray that many more will respond to that invitation and come to you, knowing that life for eternity awaits if we will just surrender our lives to you. It's a beautiful and sweet surrender. And we thank you for being a part of that, for all of us who have taken that step of faith. We thank you that we're a part of a community of faith and that we're walking this journey together, not because any of us have made it or that we're perfect or that we're sinless. On the contrary, because we need each other, because we're constantly slipping up and falling and faltering and we still have those fleshly desires. And so it's a daily walk. And the encouragement we get from one another and from worship together and from these songs keeps reminding us of your love so that we can keep our eyes fixed upon you, the author and finisher of our faith. Thank you for all that and for your word, which we pray will strengthen us today. In Jesus' name, amen. I feel led after that wonderful exhortation, Liz. Thank you for speaking up. I'm so glad you did. A uh, good friend of mine and of several folks that we have right here in our congregation, his name is Mike, and as he was struggling with some real existential questions several years ago, he had been attending a small group Bible study sponsored by this congregation, and the book of Mark was speaking to him. We were studying through the book of Mark back then. I think it's great that we're coming full circle because we're in the book of Mark now. And he came to a point when he was just struggling and he was on his couch and he said, I don't know what to do next. But he sensed that there was something eternal out there and he wasn't sure what that was. And he was just asking God for some clarification. And he said, I closed my eyes and all I saw was nothing. It was a dreaded sense of nothingness that I thought, if I'm supposed to be apart from God forever, and if all I experience is nothingness, it's the worst possible thing I could experience. I don't want that. I don't want to be apart from God. And so he sort of reached out in his thoughts. It was not an audible prayer, but he said, God, if you're there, I just need to hear a word from you. I need to know that you're real. And I'm not making this up. It's the only person I've ever known that this has happened to, but that song, He Knows My Name, he said in that silence, he heard somebody speak his name in that room. Just one word, Michael. And he melted, he just melted into God's grace and gave his heart to Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful thing to know that God knows us so well, inside and out, and then he honestly and earnestly desires that we get to know him because he wants to pour his love out to us. And we're seeing that in the book of Mark, how he comes across to people, many of whom were marginalized and perhaps even despised, and yet God loved them. 
He loved them enough to send his own son ultimately to die in their place. Let's continue in our study of the book of Mark. Mark chapter 1, we're going to pick it up with verse 40. We're looking at a guy that was marginalized and probably despised by many in that culture, but we can see Jesus' response to him. I've shared this story a couple of times with you over the years, but I need to share it again because it fits so well and helps set up what we're going to look at today. One of the joys and uh, kind of the burdens all at the same time in ministry is having the privilege of stepping into people's pain in hospital visits sometimes. And early in our ministry, Joy and I went to visit a couple because somebody knew them. It was a friend of a friend kind of situation. We didn't know them well, but they knew that they would be open to a young minister and his wife uh, coming to pray for them. And so we were delighted to do that. So we drove to the hospital in Phoenix, uh, looked in on the, the young couple there. The guy was a cowboy, and I'm, I mean a literal cowboy, the kind who actually wears boots and a cowboy hat and works on a ranch. And so he, when I say he was a cowboy, he wasn't just a wannabe. He was the real McCoy. And he was in the hospital bed, and in his own cowboy lingo, he described what was going on. He said, well, this old boy done wore himself out quicker than he intended. And he said, this carcass is just about done in. And his wife talked to us out in the hallway and filled us in after we'd visited with them for a while. And she said, by done in, he means that he's dying. And we could see that his color was terribly jaundiced. It was just a real unhealthy-looking yellow. And she said it started with a simple little habit several years ago, and he would drink one beer, a Lone Star, he was a Lone Star man, one beer each night with supper, and we didn't see any harm in that. It was no big deal. But then finances got a little bit tight. Things got anxious. He had somebody that was giving, a hard, giving him a hard time on the job. And so one became two, two became three. Over months and a couple of years, pretty soon, it was his regular habit to drink an entire six-pack every night and more than that on Saturdays. And nobody who knew him thought that was a problem. Because they thought, well, he's not a mean drunk. He's actually quite docile and friendly and easy to speak with. So he would always rationalize it by saying, if I'm hurting anybody, I'm only hurting myself. But anything, I'm here to tell you, after making that visit and praying with that family, anything that starts small and gets big enough to overtake your life that way and would eventually take your life, you're not just hurting yourself. Because he was leaving a wife and some kids, precious kids, and it was a tough situation. The only thing that was a silver lining, in my opinion, was the fact that he said, I have a clear testimony that I know Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior, so I know where I'm going. And so his sin was not so great that it was greater than God's grace. God had forgiven him. God was going to usher him into that place he had prepared for him. But in my opinion, much too prematurely. I would have loved for him to have had 40, maybe even 50 more good years on this earth. But he was taken very early because of that. So we were seeing something that was an outward expression, that jaundiced look and the feeble lack of vitality, even though two or three weeks prior to that, to everybody who knew him, he looked completely normal. But that was an outward expression of something that was literally eating him away. It was cirrhosis of the liver. 
Now, we know that there can be other causes for cirrhosis. In his case, it was definitely alcohol. But we prayed with them, and I can't help but think of that family every time I read this passage about Jesus talking to a man who was outcast and in this case didn't bring this thing upon himself. That's a big difference because clearly that man's habits caught up with him and he did bring on the cirrhosis by himself. Cirrhosis meaning, I know some of you are just really needing to know this, but it's sort of a scarring or fibers, fibrosis of the liver and uh, so it just causes it not to be able to function properly. Today we know that when it comes to leprosy, there can be genetic factors there, and we also know what causes it, and we know that it's curable, but that was not the case back in Jesus' time. We also know that uh, it was kind of a catch-all phrase. Leprosy meant anything that could be a skin disease in that time when Jesus was present, and that anything that was visible to the naked eye that way would, be un that would make them unclean ceremonially. And so, therefore, they would be outcast. And so, there were different kinds of lepers, depending on what kind of disease they might have had. But they were cast literally outside, which means that they had to kind of congregate together. They would start their own leper colonies. So, leper colonies have been around since way back. We also know that because it is treatable, things are different today than it might have been back then. But it makes it even more powerful to know that Jesus could do what he's about to do with this man that he's going to encounter. I also have to tell you one more story. I've shared this with you before, but it also fits so nicely. Tom Elkins, good friend of ours, was the chief of staff of OBGYN at the University of, Mi <coughs> excuse me, University of Michigan Hospital. I'm getting over a common cold. Tested negative for COVID yesterday. No worries. I'm more than 10 feet away from any of you. <laughs> My wife and daughter, Hi, uh, Joy and Callie are getting over this same thing, and it, fortunately it's been rather mild on my part. And isn't it good that we're getting common diseases again? <laughs> Yay. So uh, Tom Elkins was somebody that we trusted and knew well. Uh, he was a really good friend, and he would go to Ghana and um, Nigeria, Africa, every year because he was a specialist. He'd done a lot of his training down in Louisiana in tropical medicine. And so he would go to these two countries and teach in some of the hospitals that were there, but they would also save up some of the most difficult surgeries for him so that he could do some of those surgeries while he was there on these mission trips. And what we discovered was that there were certain um, superstitions, and some of them were considered religious superstitions among some of the tribes where he was ministering, and one of them was that if any woman was incontinent, they thought that was caused by an evil spirit. So he would like to go in and do these surgeries because sometimes it could be something as simple as something was damaged in childbirth and a woman would become incontinent. Today, here in our country, that would be no big deal. And if it was slight enough, you just buy a box of adult depends and the way you go. Or if it's something that needed to be corrected, we have those corrective surgeries available. But they didn't have that. And so for them in that tribe, it was like that leper back in Jesus' day. And one of the women that Tom related to us when he came back from that mission trip after he had done the surgery for, for this woman said, I saw this passage differently after this trip because I did what was a difficult surgery. I, I'm not going to lie. It was tricky because you can do more damage if you're not careful. You have to be very, very careful. But it gave her back her ability to not leak. 
He said, but it also gave her back her life. It gave her back her community. She was welcomed to stay back in her hut, back within the village walls, and she was a part of that society once again. It was incredible. It was huge to see that with my own eyes. I recognize now what Jesus does, and he does that for every single one of us if we feel that we're alienated in some way. And, of course, we're going to see that Jesus' ultimate aim was to get us reconciled so that we can be a part of the community that's going to last forever because we're all alienated because of sin. Well, Jesus' objectives, as we have said, some of our buildup through Mark is that his main objective early in his ministry was teaching. That was his primary objective. Secondarily, he was doing miracles. However, we're going to see today that those miracles would always validate his teaching, and sometimes they would serve as something to illustrate the points he was making in his teaching as well. We're definitely going to see that today in this passage. Now, some commentators I disagreed with. I, I have been studying the Bible long enough now that I feel confident when I read a good commentator to say, I agree with 98% of this book, but I vehemently disagree with this terminology over here, and I would use a different word for that, sir. And uh, they don't know me from Adam, so I can have that conversation with a book. But some people would say that Jesus' miracles in Mark were parables that were illustrating different things. I don't like the use of that word parable because a lot of the parables that Jesus told when he was teaching were fictitious. So we tend to equate parables with a story or with a fictitious made-up something because it's a, an earthly story that points to a heavenly truth. However, these miracles really happened. So rather than calling them parables, now in, the, in one sense of the definition of that word, they are a parable, but I really prefer something different. I really prefer for us to think of them as true miracles to illustrate a spiritual point. So I just didn't want us to miss that and think that I might be taking you down a liberal road into thinking that these miracles didn't actually happen because they clearly did. And each miracle illustrated points Jesus was making in his authoritative teaching so that people would understand about the kingdom of God and ultimately about his purpose, which was to be able to die for sin so that people could be ushered into that kingdom as well. I realized through an experience that I've also shared with you that I broke my arm on a playground, and I've used it as an illustration sometimes, but that's no parable. The pain was real. The visit to the orthopedic doctor was real, the cast was real, and yet it served to illustrate some of my points. So that the point that I'm making here is all these miracles that we're looking at, and Mark added more miracles than teachings in his gospel because he was an action-oriented guy. And so it is a part of Jesus' teachings because they're true stories that are actually giving more credence to these uh, truths that Jesus is teaching. Are we all on the same page Okay, say, the miracles were real. That's right. They illustrate teaching. Good for you. Okay, you got it. Now, we're going to see in this passage today, Jesus healing a man stricken with leprosy. Jesus knew that people had a misperception about leprosy, just like Tom Elkins knew that it was a misperception that incontinence was caused by an evil spirit. He knew that there was a physiological cause for that. And yet, we're also going to see that there was something even more vital that Jesus was teaching through this real miracle that was important to that group of folks as well. Leprosy was a symbol to them of sin. It was a visible symbol of sin to them. If anybody had some outward expression like that, clearly they would have sinned, and it was as though 
it was a manifestation of sin itself. So they couldn't even touch them, which is why they had to stay a certain distance away. They had all these little rules and regulations. They'd had to say unclean if they were coming so that they could pass. It almost sounds like COVID-19 in 2020. People would start to keep their distance, but for the fact that they were afraid they would catch this deadly disease and be cast out from being ceremonially clean, which means they could not even worship together with the people that they knew if they were Jewish. This means that Jesus' healing of leprosy was not just a healing of leprosy. It's not just a physical healing. It meant that he had the power over sin itself. So in their minds, this was a huge lesson to them. Jesus was healing sin itself if he were healing leprosy. That's what it was representative to them. Now we know that you can get a cocktail of three different antibiotics and cure leprosy today. They didn't have that back then, so Jesus used what was at his disposal and spoke right into their culture, and he did so powerfully that way. Let's read the passage together, shall we? Starting at verse 40, Mark 1. A man with leprosy came and knelt in front of Jesus, begging to be healed. If you are willing, that's a great phrase. If you are willing, you can heal me and make me clean, he said. There's humility in the way he said that. Verse 41, moved with compassion. The kind of compassion, Liz, that you speak of and that you exhorted us to have. And we want to be that kind of compassionate church toward others as well. Jesus reached out his hand and touched him. I am willing, he said. Be healed. Remember how I said that Jesus' words are so powerful? It's two words. Be healed. Instantly, the leprosy disappeared, and the man was healed. Then Jesus sent him on his way with a stern warning. Don't tell anyone about this. Instead, go to the priest and let him examine you. A couple of reasons for that. One is that Jesus was trying to show that he was fulfilling the law of Moses, and they had certain specific things they were supposed to have done if somebody had been healed so that they could be proclaimed as healed by the priest. He says, take along the offering required in the law of Moses for those who have been healed of leprosy. This will be a public testimony that you have been cleansed. And the man went right out and said, I'll do exactly as you said, Lord. Is that what your translation says? No. In fact, he did the opposite. The man went and spread the word, proclaiming to everyone what had happened. And as a result, oh, this is the downside. Large crowds soon surrounded Jesus, and he couldn't publicly enter a town anywhere. And as we're going to see right away in chapter 2, which was probably still in Capernaum, right around where Simon Peter's mother-in-law had been healed and where Peter lived, and it was right across the street from the synagogue. Remember that? Good for you. Thanks for hanging in there. Then we understand that Jesus was very limited in what he could accomplish in that town. Very limited. And it wasn't quite his time yet. So he was trying to tell the man, don't do that. Go to the priest first. He didn't do it. It made things difficult for him. He couldn't publicly enter a town anywhere. He had to stay out in secluded places. But people from everywhere kept coming to him. Well, Mark's account of this true story, say it again, miracles were true. They really happened. Okay, good for you. Related to sin and our greatest need, which is to be cleansed or healed of sin itself. That's a foreshadowing in the very beginning of Mark's gospel that we're going to see really carried out as he brings his gospel to completion. 
Well, we're going to see that sin controls. Let me break them down into three basic ways that the enemy, the thief who wants to steal, kill, and destroy, tries to control us through sin. Number one, tries to control us by convincing us that we're good. So if somebody were to say, uh, you need a Savior. Would you like to have a Savior? You can have this grace for free. And if you say, no, nah, I'm good, thanks. That's one way it controls. Because that's the first big lie of the enemy is that we don't need to be forgiven of sin. It's a lie. If somebody says, nah, I don't have to confess sin, I'm fine. I'm not going to mention the person's name, but I remember several months ago that somebody of rather significant notoriety was asked that question, basically. Do you confess sins because you've mentioned you have a faith? And this person said, well, no, I don't really have to confess sins because I'm a pretty good guy. And I, I did a double take, and I cringed a little bit because I thought if a person responds that way, they clearly have no concept of the gospel. They don't even have a rudimentary understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They don't understand why it was even necessary that Christ did what he did on the cross for us and what he accomplished on that cross. It's all about forgiveness of sin, and confession of sin is a part of that repentance that Jesus says we have to, to do in order to make ourselves open to his grace. So if somebody says, oh, no, I don't need that. I'm a pretty good person. They've bought the lie. And we need to pray that the Holy Spirit will open their eyes and make them aware that all of us are sinners. In fact, 1 John 1, 8 makes it pretty abundantly clear. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. The second way sin controls is it's a comparison game. I'm not that bad. Would you like to follow Jesus? Well, no thanks. I'm not that bad off. I mean, I'm not bad enough to be like some of you folks who have to lean on a crutch all the time. Or I'm not like those awful people that we see on the programs that we've been watching on YouTube with all these true crime things. Man, there's some bad people out there. Oh, my goodness. But I'm not that bad. So thank you, though. Life's going pretty well for me. That's the second way sin can control. It's like the enemy starts with the biggie, but if you start to kind of think, well, maybe, yeah, I could admit that I do sin once in a while. I, I have told an untruth now and then. I, I did take something that didn't belong to me once when I was in grade school, so I guess technically that would make me a lawbreaker or a sinner. So, yeah, but, but I'm not that bad. So that's the second way that the enemy tries to deceive us. The third way, if a person's finally getting to that point that we're thinking, yeah, I feel it, I, I feel it now. I, I understand I'm a sinner. Then the enemy, this is the last resort of the enemy, says, you're too bad. You are so bad that you've sinned so horrifically that God could never forgive somebody like you. I suspect that the enemy was trying to whisper those kinds of words to Paul because he was even the one who said, I am the chief of sinners. And yet God died for me through Christ Jesus he gave his own life so that I could have life abundantly. And if he can forgive me, and I, I think that was the basis of his teaching, then he could forgive anybody. So we may think of ourselves as not bad people or a lot better than some I've seen, but if there's depravity inside, there's sin, and we need forgiveness. The thief's purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy Christ's purpose, he says, my purpose, is to give them a rich and satisfying life. And in that young cowboy's case that I mentioned, that was stolen away from him. 
the rich and satisfying and long life was stolen away. That was something that caused me to think, what would this man's life be like, this leper, had Christ not intervened? What would our lives be like if Christ had not intervened? I think even when I was 16 years old, my guardian angels were probably in traction. I drove in ways that I should not be driving. I'm so grateful that God protected me in several different ways that he's done so. I thought, man, I, that was a close call. Whew. I think God's got something in store for me someday. But aren't we glad that God got a hold of us and showed us, if you're a believer in Christ, that yes, you are a sinner, but you don't have to stay in that sinful state. There is forgiveness for you. He's giving us life more abundant and free. Well, apart from Christ and his intervention and his grace on our behalf, we would all be, in a sense, like that leper because we would have something insidious from the inside eating away at us so that we would be like walking dead people. And little bits of us, not physically, we would be losing as the lepers would because the Nerve endings would cause them not to feel certain things, so if they bumped into something and damaged themselves, they wouldn't feel it. That's what was the result. Some people like Dr. Paul Brand figured out that it was the nerves that were affected and not the flesh itself. So it wasn't a flesh-eating virus. It was the nerves that were gone bad, which is why somebody could damage themselves and not know it. They could reach into the fire to drop. If they dropped a piece of pita bread, they could reach into some hot coals, and they'd come out with third-degree burns and not feel it. So it was the numbness that was the problem there. Well, let's look at see and to see how there are some analogies between sin and leprosy because I think that these are some things that Christ is trying to show us through this true miracle which really happened. Say miracles really happened. There you go. So that it's illustrating his points about what sin can be like in connection with leprosy. First of all, it alienates. And that was pretty obvious from this guy. He had to live outside the village, and like that lady in Africa that Tom Elkins healed. The reason I think small groups are so important in churches, we had some good growth encounter teachings going on. We've had some great small groups. We had one that we talked about our different personality types so we could figure out why we're so weird and how God can transform that weirdness, and we can learn to pivot quicker when we know that we've come up against something that we need to grasp how, how can we allow the Holy Spirit to transform us and keep us from going to those negative places in our personalities? All the things that small groups can do for us bring us into community. And when we're alienated from those communities, it makes life really difficult because we were not meant to live Christianity alone. It doesn't work well. Alienation is awful. And sin is like leprosy in another way. It numbs Sin numbs things that we need to feel if we're going to learn from those feelings and do the right things because of them. It numbs, sin numbs our feelings that we don't want to feel, but only temporarily. All of us can have escapism behaviors and or substances. Sometimes it's the substances that we need to get that dopamine or we need to just numb whatever it is. There are certain behaviors get, that can create that dopamine as well. I'll just have you fill in your own blank about what your own escapist behavior might be, but there's a number of them that can create that same thing in our lives. And when we default to that, if we're bored or stressed or grieving or angry and we default to that, we're trying to eliminate feelings that we're trying to escape from. We, we don't want to feel those feelings. That's a numbness that's not good for us because we're not meant to be numb forever. 
And when we come out of that numbness and we discover that the feelings are still there, then we work ourselves into a spiral and we just go down and down and down, which is why Jesus, I think, is showing us that we don't need to be numb. We can feel everything, even he, feeled, he felt everything, including the grief and the sadness. When he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's sweating great drops of blood, and he's saying, Father, let this cup pass from me. He felt everything, but he felt it. The only way, I, I mentioned this to people who have been struggling, especially with certain sorts of substance abuse, the only way for you to feel better is to feel bad for a while. Don't try to escape feeling bad. Feel it. Embrace it. Talk to somebody. Get around other people who have felt those same things because that's why we need community, which is why AA is so important. Any number of good support groups out there where people can say, I can see now that I'm not alone in this struggle, that there are others who are struggling just like me. That's kind of why I think church is like Sinners Anonymous. But we don't have to be anonymous. We can all admit, yes, I struggle. And yes, I need your prayer and support because I have just really had a tough week this week. Please pray for me, and I'm coming out the other side. And I love the fact that we've got good small groups and new Bible studies getting ready to start. We've got a Tuesday night Bible study. The ladies really minister to one another. We've got a Thursday study that's going to be happening pretty soon. We've got these growth encounters. I want to see more happening because that's how we do life together, and we support each other and that we don't have to be like walking dead people and we don't have to numb the feelings. Another thing that I noticed in studying about leprosy was that there was one guy who, just, who gave himself away to a community of lepers in a way that was so Christ-like. His name was Father Damien. He was a Belgian priest who went to Hawaii. And uh, he did some things that most people would not have done back then because this was way back in the mid-1800s, and they didn't have the cure for leprosy yet. They hadn't discovered what causes it, didn't have those antibiotics. But he moved to Kalaweo, which is a little village on an island, a tiny island of uh, Molokai in Hawaii. And the village itself had been completely quarantined. Can you imagine a small town? I, I live in Milan. It's kind of a fairly small town. Can you imagine quarantining the whole town and saying, uh-oh, you all have such a bad disease that we're just going to rope it all off too bad for you, but this is your new home. That's what they did in Kalaweo. For 16 years, 16, Father Damien ministered to the people there. He learned their language. He helped them build houses so that they could live in things that were actually good shelters because they had just been living in shacks and disorganized kind of village. He bandaged their wounds. He embraced the physical bodies of people that would not be touched by other people. And he preached the gospel to people that nobody else wanted to go and preach to. He organized schools for them. He even organized a band, which is what really made me like this guy. He started choirs. He built all these things. And with his own two hands, Father Damien built 2,000 wooden coffins because previously they just had to throw people in a dirt hole, and he wanted them to be buried with dignity when they did die. Over the years, Kalaweo became a place to live and not just a place to die. That was because Father Damien influenced everybody he came to know by that great love to say, you belong too. God knows your name. He's creating a place for you in heaven, and if you can just surrender into his grace, you can be his. 
And one day he stood up and something was different. He started his sermon and he said, we lepers. He had caught it. He wasn't just some outsider preaching to people. He was one of them. He was in their skin. He became like them, and he would live with them, and now he would die as they died. We lepers. I think that as saved sinners, all of us need to embrace the idea that it's we lepers or we sinners. We can't elevate one above the other. All of us have been saved by God's grace. And so from this day forward, I pray that we will all start to see people as people in need of God's grace, regardless of their background, regardless of what terrible sin they may have done or are doing, exactly the way Jesus would relate to them, because we are supposed to be Jesus' love with skin on, so that they can see clearly God's love and be drawn to the gospel and be changed by his Holy Spirit. Here's the mind-blowing spiritual truth by Father Damien's true life story, which also was an illustration of what he had been teaching. God came to earth, and he came to earth not merely to help us from outside. I'm the, the benefactor, the great God who's reaching down to your level. I'm stooping down to where you are, but I'm still way up here. No, he came down, and he got right down in the dirt with us. And he became as one of us and died as we died so that we could understand his great love and be drawn into his grace. It's a question that was nagging me all week as I was thinking through and meditating on this passage. Is there a specific type of person who, when mentioned, or if I see them on TV or something, causes me to shiver a little bit and think, whew, well, I wouldn't want to be around that kind of person. I got convicted. Because instantly, I could think of two different types of people that I would really want to not be around. And God was saying, are you willing to step into their life as I stepped into yours? Are you willing to be like Father Damien and reach out to them and serve them in a way that they can clearly see my love for them? Because they deserve to see God's grace in action as well. Ooh. I had to wrestle with that one. I'm still wrestling with that one. I'll continue to wrestle with that one as I pray through for God to help me overcome my prejudices because I've got them. I know that there can be words that we use to describe people groups, and sometimes we place them in a certain category. And I suspect that there may be some that when we say we're going to adopt an Afghan family that Samaritan's Purse is going to pair us up with, and we're going to actually be ministering to one specific family with real people who have real kids, and they're going to be living in our own community, that some people might have some words that they use to describe those people, and it might be that there are some prejudices about anybody who is a refugee or somebody coming from another place where there have been a lot of bad things happening because we might not understand their situation. And maybe it will help take away some of our fear to know that we are partnering with Samaritan's Purse, and so we're not alone in this, and they're vetting people very carefully. They'll have some resources that they'll be bringing to the table with them, and that Samaritan's 
uh, Samaritan's Purse is actually helping put out that uh, certain amount of money per person that uh, will be a member of that family. And yet, I have a feeling that there may still be a stretching that will need to happen in some of us. A stretching that God will have for us to say, can I learn to appreciate these people as people deserving of my love and care and practical ministry? Let me read these words from the Apostle Paul. It comes from Romans 10. But how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they've never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And it's also helpful to remember what verse comes just before that verse. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Are we willing as new creations in Christ to do the same for others that Christ did for us? To lay ourselves down so they can see Christ in action? Paul was talking to a bunch of believers who were learning what it meant to lay aside the old life and to walk as new creatures. He says in Colossians 3, I'm just going to read this and just let the words pour over you instead of reading it on the screen. Put on your new nature. Be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. In this new life, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile or circumcised or uncircumcised or barbaric or uncivilized or slave or free. And I, you could put a lot of other descriptors in there based on what our current situation is. Christ is all that matters. And he lives in all of us as new creations in Christ. He lives in everybody who has died to self and has been raised to walk in newness of Christ. And then he says in verse 12 of Romans three, or Colossians 3, Since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourselves with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Sounds like the fruit of the Spirit, doesn't it? Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must Forgive others. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. We're all lepers. And Jesus offers healing to everyone who is a leper. And he invites us to join him in that redemptive task. Let's pray. Father, it's a daunting task when we start to think about what that might mean to us, what it might entail. As I start thinking about what Paul was dealing with in his culture, but when I see how it's translating into our current culture, I realize that you're probably going to be calling every single one of us to stretch where we've never stretched before if we're going to be a part of this redemptive task that you've given everyone who is a new creation in Christ doesn't come naturally because the natural man is fleshly and we want to protect ourselves. But the new creature in Christ acts like Christ would act and we're willing to see people as human beings and not as enemies or not as different. And I pray, Father, that you would start, and start with me, 
continuing to make my heart into a heart that beats with your heart. I want to be that pliable clay and that you are the potter so that I can be formed to be more and more like you. And collectively, collectively, I pray that we will become the kind of body of Christ that manifests this kind of Christ-like sacrificial love so that people can come to faith in you and be with you forever because you know their name and you're creating a place for them just like you did for us. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen.